Let's turn, please, to Genesis chapter 18, if you're not already there. We are taking our time to move through the book of Genesis. We are going verse by verse throughout the book. We are now in chapter 18, and we find ourselves in the midst of Abraham's story. And specifically today, as we study Genesis chapter 18, we're going to find two primary things that really stick out to us. And those two things are this. Our God, the one true God, the Lord of the universe, who made all things and sustains all things, who loves and cares for his people, that Lord, he is loyal. He always keeps his promises. That same Lord is just. He will always deal well, righteously, with sin. He must. These two things might seem contradictory. These two things might seem to create an insurmountable dichotomy in how we think about the Almighty. Part of the reason why we think like that is because we're like that. We have moments, perhaps even days or seasons, where we tend to reflect kindness, loyalty, grace, mercy. At other times, those sentiments, those characteristics get set aside, and we tend to highlight justice righteousness, retribution, and then we feel badly about that and we swing back. The problem with that is if we don't have these things in harmony on a consistent basis, if they're not held in tension, the grace that we exhibit might not really be grace at all. It might just be weakness. On the other hand, if our justice, if our desire for righteousness is not tempered by grace and mercy, we might just be mean. But the one true God that we worship always holds in perfect harmony his gracious loyalty and his righteous justice. And so what I want us to do today is sort of twofold. I want us to come out of learning today, resting and trusting the loyal and just God. And then, secondly, I want us to learn how those things are to show up in the way that we trust God and then therefore treat other people. So how do we think about God, number one? And then number two, how does that translate into the way that we treat those around us? So Abraham and Sarah had much to learn. We have much to learn. As we look back into the pages of God's Word, pages which God's people have been poring over for millennia now, we look back and we hope that we will gain eyes Eyes that will help us to see God for who he is and then be able to interpret our reality. In many ways, that's what the Bible does for us. It teaches us who he is and how he has treated his people. But you see, these are not just stories on a page. They give us a lens through which we can look at our own world, our own lives, our own existence. So I ask you to prayerfully consider Who is our God and how has he treated his people? And then, therefore, how will that equip us that we might understand the way that he treats us as well? So we will study today the Lord, loyal and just. As we have been doing, we want to read through every verse of this chapter. So I want you to buckle in. If this is hard for you to pay attention while lengthy passages are read, and I know it's hard because all of us have a little bit of Western ADHD, I ask you to beg the third person of the Trinity that we call the Holy Spirit to help you focus that God's Word might sink in today. This is God's Word. 
And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham's still hanging out in the tents all these years later. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. That wouldn't go over well in our culture, would it? And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. In other words, she was in menopause. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He, the Lord, said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men sent out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare is the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And God blessed to us the reading of his word. First thing I want us to see today is that God always, always keeps his covenant promises. 
You see, these are not just words that are important for the patriarchs. It's easy for us to look back at these guys seeing God do miraculous things and think, oh, that's for them. But I think when it really comes down to it, we often ask ourselves the question, will the one true God that I believe in, will he show up and take care of me? It's easy for us to look back at Genesis chapter 18 and set it in context and realize that God had to keep these promises because if God did not build a nation through Abraham, starting with one child named Isaac, you wouldn't get the nation of Israel, you wouldn't get King David, you wouldn't have King David's line, then you would not get the Messiah, and therefore there would not be a Savior who would rescue the world. And therefore all the covenant promises that God made Abraham would fall on their face. So you look back at this and you say, well, God's doing something really big here. He's going to bring redemption through this man. And and you would be right in saying that. And frankly, that's the biggest thing we should walk away from the entire book of Genesis with. That God keeps his redemptive covenant promises. He always has. If he had not, we would be doomed. But he did. But you see, these people are not living in a vacuum. These are real people. This is a real woman who struggled with infertility. This is a real woman who at this point has either gone through or is going through menopause. She knows she's not going to have kids now. This is a woman that God has shown up to and made promises to her that he's going to give her a kid, and he still hasn't. This is a woman who got so desperate that she gave her servant to her husband to be a second wife to have a kid, and that turned out to be a disaster. This is a woman who's watching her husband waffle back and forth between faith and unbelief. This this is a wife sometimes that watches that husband in his moments of faith and probably gets bitter against him because the God that her husband believes in is not showing up and taking care of anything. This is probably a husband from time to time who waffles in unbelief and cries right along with her. This is a man who is responsible not just for his wife, And now this child named Ishmael and this servant wife, and that's created much tension. But hundreds of other people we know from the context of Abraham's story. He's responsible for a lot of people. But he wonders, will this God really show up in space and time and do what he says he's going to do? And so here he is, as far as we know, on just a regular day doing what he does. And three people show up. Now, it's not incredibly clear from the context from Moses' writing, but it seems to be that he he understood that these people were significant. Because later on when it's revealed that this actually is the Lord, this is Yahweh, this is the covenant-keeping God who made all the promises to Abraham, that Abraham is not surprised. There's not like shock on his face when he realizes who this really is. So, in one way or another, it seems like Abraham knew right off that this was someone special. In fact, the Lord himself, and he had some of his messengers with him. And seemingly now, God comes and says, I've put you through enough. I know your frame. I know your makeup. And it's time now for me to show up and actually bring to pass my promises. Why had he delayed so long? None of us like trials. I mean, just none of us do. 
We might say we do. We might put on a brave face in the midst of our trials because we want to seem sort of like spiritually mature in the moment. And we want to weather those trials well and say we trust God. But nobody really enjoys trials. I think we often have the ability retrospectively to look back upon our trials and say that they yielded good fruit in us. But in the midst of our trials, none of us like them very much, particularly whenever those trials are lengthy. And and let me just paint a couple scenarios for you. Periods of sickness. When God allows our body to be afflicted, and the affliction will not go away in a short time, perhaps even it's chronic. Whenever relationships begin to fracture, and the prospect of putting those relationships back together piece by piece we know will not happen overnight, that's heart-wrenching. When we're praying for something significant, and yet God delays and delays and delays, You see, trials are hard enough in themselves, but the longevity of the trials is often what creates the most ache, the most unbelief, the most anxiety, the most trouble for us. Why did God delay so long for Abraham and Sarah? Well, I think he did it for them, and I think he did it for us. First, I think he did it for them because he had to get them to the point that they were rid of self-confidence. Just like Abraham and Sarah, we need to learn to be rid of self-confidence. So this story, real story, is for us as well. Because we find ourselves very often in the same place. So even though God is doing grand covenant-keeping things here by, by promising to keep the Abrahamic covenant, which will, of course, one day bring about gospel reality for us, these are real people with real problems. But he wanted them to understand that there was nothing that they could do to bring about the promises. That which they craved so much they couldn't accomplish. And he gets them to the point where quite literally it would take a miracle to answer the promises. But that's what God finally shows up to do. And at this point they are so worn out that they're just willing to trust because they don't have any other resources. And we need that as well. This is for us. As we read this story, once again, we gain a lens whereby we can look at the reality of our world. Abraham showed great hospitality here to these men. I don't want to make a huge deal of this. I don't think the point of this passage is that we be hospitable. It's interesting that later on in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, that this passage is obliquely referred to as an exhortation to actually be hospitable because you never know whenever you're going to entertain angels. Don't think that's probably the reality for us, but but this was the cultural thing to do. When people came by your tent, not just significant people, because I think Abraham realized that these people were significant, but this is just the way it was. In fact, if you go to the Middle East now, the Near East now, this is what they'll do for you. They take care of you, they will feed you, they will not let you go without. And Abraham gave his very best. He scrambled around to make sure that these guys got their very best, and then he hung out and he watched them. He was basically saying to them, I am at your disposal. I think the real key here, though, comes after verse 8. And here's Sarah. She's hanging out. This is kind of the custom of the day. The men are doing their thing. She's hanging out doing her thing. And she's listening, though. She wants to know what's going on. They do not ask where she is in verse 9 because they don't know. 
They want to know where she is in verse 9 because they know she's listening. And she knows that she has an inability biologically now to bear children. When she hears that in a year from this point that she's going to be able to have a kid, she's thinking about all the other promises that have been given in the prior chapters. Yeah, you said you were going to do this. You said you were going to do this. But it hasn't happened yet. In fact, biologically now, it's impossible. Verse 13, I don't think the Lord is being harsh here when he says, why did Sarah laugh? I think he's just trying to get to the point. He's diving down into her psyche to deal with her struggle. In verse 15, she denies laughing, it says, because she was afraid. But he's clear, firm, I don't think harsh by saying, no, you did laugh. He understands her fear. He understands her doubts. But what he wants her, what he wants her husband to know, is that he always keeps his promises. I don't think ultimately God is that troubled by our struggle with belief. I think he understands it. Think about it. When your little children come to you, in the moment of great pain and agony because they have their recent scrape, the most recent bruise, you comfort them. And you know from your own scrapes and bruises and your own children's scrapes and bruises that this will probably not cost them their life. They're probably going to be okay. So you grab them up and you hold them close and you dry their tears and you make sure they're fine and you tell them it's going to be okay. Any parent worth their salt, any parent who has any sort of heart at all, does not look at that child and say, I don't have time for you. You know it's going to be okay. It's always going to be okay. i got to go do my thing. Now, if you're a dad, you might look at said child and say, rub some dirt on it, suck it up. you got to learn to deal with some pain, especially to your boys. But you still have some compassion on them because you care about them. When Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that we parents being evil, knowing how to give good gifts, it's an argument from lesser to greater. If you know how to do that, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, if your son asks you for a piece of bread, you don't give him a stone. If he asks you for a fish, you don't give him a serpent. If he asks you for an egg, you don't give him a scorpion. You know how to give good gifts, but you're evil, Jesus says. How much more does your Father in heaven know how to give good gifts to those who ask him? I think he had compassion on Sarah. I think he understood her laughter of disbelief. Probably some cynicism here. She was at the end of herself. And that's right where he wanted her. Sometimes in these moments where God brings us to the end of our proverbial rope, when all of our resources have run dry, we are angry, we are anxious, we are tired. I suspect that a lot of you are there today, and if you are not there today, you'll be there soon. Does God do this because he's malevolent? Does God do this because he's capricious? Does God do this because he gets some sort of joy in our misery and agony? I don't think so at all. 
just like we comfort our children, our loved ones in the midst of their deep trials, how much more does God want to show up and he will show up in our agony and meet all of our needs. And because this text not only tells us what he's done in the past for his covenant people, it once again gives us a lens through which we can look at our own. And haven't you found it to be the case, if you've been a child of God for any length of time, that that's what he always does? Now, maybe not on a micro level, but on the macro level, hasn't God always been faithful to you? Aren't there times where you can look back at your own cairns, your heap of stones, as memorials, as landmarks that along the way that God has shepherded you, has taken care of you, is guiding you and getting you where he wants to go. And it's not only bringing him glory, but it's bringing you joy, peace, rest, and confidence. But because of our limitations... In the midst of our trials, especially those that are marked by a duration of time, we can get very irrational. Our eyes can be blinded, our hearts may become dull and hardened again, and we forget. In those moments, we turn inward. Our confidence rests on ourselves. We try to muscle up and muster up enough strength to make life work. And eventually, fatigue sets in and we get to the end of ourselves. And it's in those moments where God has us where he wants us and he shows up and he lifts us up and he sustains us and he fulfills the promises. If you're at the end of yourself today and God is changing your circumstances and helping you deal with them as he wants, then you can testify to this truth. But if you once again have forgotten, if you have taken your eyes off of the reality of how God has worked and is working on your behalf, then you are struggling and you cannot hear him. You see, we get frustrated with our children when they throw tantrums. Maybe your kids are older now and you can remember when they threw themselves in the ground and they pounded their feet and their fists into the carpet because they wanted their toy or they wanted a snack or whatever. And you look at them and you realize that they're just being irrational. But we do this. We throw adult, sophisticated tantrums. We cover up our ears and we shield our eyes from understanding the reality of how God has worked and is continuing to work. But you see, God in his mercy will not let off the gas in those moments. He keeps the pressure on because the worst thing that we can do is try to control the situation. It'll always end up a disaster. Abraham and Sarah had done this. Abraham made Sarah lie to Pharaoh about being his sister. Sarah pressured Abraham into taking Hagar to be his wife. They had tried to manipulate their lives for a long time. But now they were empty. So I guess there's two possible responses to this for us today. You can keep kicking and screaming. But because God is relentless, relentless, he will keep the pressure on until you relent. Or you can look at him and say, I am tired of fighting. I'm tired of trying to make life work on my own. 
And I want to say to you that one of the marks of maturity that should eventually be showing up in each one of us, male and female alike, is that we reflexively trust him when the trials come. Here's what I mean. Rather than taking a period of time and throwing those tensions and scrambling and turning inward and trying to manipulate them so they work out in our own way, we should learn to reflexively lift our eyes to him and say, I don't understand this. I don't want what you're doing. I don't like what you're doing. But you've always done well. You're batting a thousand. You've never done poorly, ever for your people in the past, and for me. Now, you've allowed pain to come into my life as you've brought me to the destination you want me at. Again, micro as opposed to macro. Small picture as opposed to big picture. And I haven't always liked how you've done it, but you've always done it well. And one of the marks of maturity that will grow in us over time is that we can learn to look at him and say, I can tell it's coming. I can tell that you're getting ready to put me through something, and I don't like it, and it freaks me out, but I want to have confidence in you. He had been preparing them for this in so many ways, by by allowing them to butt their heads up against the wall and causing them to fail. And now they come to the end of themselves, and they can look back and say, we've tried to make it work, and it doesn't work. But God always keeps his covenant promises, whether we kick and scream or don't, especially as he brings about his grand redemptive promises. And, of course, this is the best promise of all. Because he kept his promises to Abraham and Sarah, you and I got salvation. You see, as we've learned, the promise to Abraham is that he would build through him a nation, but through that nation he would bless the whole world. How did that happen? That happened, of course, in the person of Christ. So I'm thankful that God kept his promises covenant promises, whether Abraham and Sarah were compliant or not. We've already learned that God gave them new names. Abraham used to be called Abram. Sarah used to be called Sarai. I suppose they began calling each other these new names, and every time they heard their new name called out, it was a reminder that God had given them promises. And now God shows up and says, where's Sarah? Where's the newly named princess? Hey, Abraham, father of many nations, where is she? When it comes down to it, God wants these people and he wants us to vertically trust him. He wants us to understand that he will always take care of us. So we rest in the one who controls all things. I think also, however, this has implications for the way that we treat one another. So let me make now the connection between gospel reality, what God has done for us, how we rest in him, and how that has implications for the way that we treat people around us. If it's true that God always shows up, that he always keeps his covenant promises, then we can have ultimate confidence in him in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our failures. We need to have that kind of rock-solid confidence that he will always do what he says, despite our struggle, despite our sin. You need to know that. But if that's coming true in you, if you're learning to understand that, if you're learning to rest in that, then you've got to become that way as well. But you see, you cannot manufacture that. That is produced in you over time. That kind of character is 
built into you over time as you go through life learning these things. And then what the Holy Spirit of God does is he forms new character in you. He makes you more like the Son of God. The Son of God is always loyal to his people. Are you that way? I think that's where our minds need to go if we're doing a thorough examination of this text. How do you treat those around you? Were Abraham and Sarah doing all that they could do to merit the promises of God? Were they meeting God halfway? Were they doing things so God could help them? No. So what do you do whenever you see people in front of you who aren't keeping their end of the bargain? Well, I think you have to learn to be like what your God is like. Your God is constantly loyal. Is that how you are known? When your wife or your husband is not loving you like you deserve to be loved in your mind or respected as you deserve to be respected in your mind, how do you respond to them? You see, it's easy for us to expect so much from God because he is so gracious and kind, and we know this about him, but to grow so irritated with people when they fail us. You see, we want the grace of God in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our failures. But in the midst of struggling with those around us, I think perhaps sometimes most particularly in our marriages, it's so difficult for us to show the same kind of loyal grace. Is your spouse or husband, wife, are they respecting you, loving you like you want or deserve to be respected today? How are you responding to that? What about a friend? Are your friends always perfect in their relational loyalty to you? And how do you respond in those moments? Are you a person who is marked by constant loyalty to those around you when they do well? And perhaps most especially, when they do poorly. You who so crave the loyalty of God in your struggles and in your sin, do you reflect the same kind of loyalty, mercy, patience, long-suffering to those around you who so desperately need it? You see, it's one thing to be so thankful that God is not retributional. But it's entirely a different thing in the moment whenever you feel like retribution for those who have messed you over to look at them and say, I will not leave you. I will not run away from you. In fact, I delight in forgiving. I delight in waiting for your apology. I am here and I love you. If one of the marks of Christian maturity is that we learn to reflexively trust God in the midst of our trials, another corresponding one is in the midst of our struggles with other people that we always default to loyalty. Is that what marks you? So primarily, I think the text is encouraging us to confidence in the one who is always loyal in keeping his promises. But if we're thinking well, if we're thinking fully and thoroughly, we have to think about how this affects us. Do you reflect the same kind of loyal grace to those around you? 
Later on, after David is off the scene and his son Solomon is now reigning, he builds a temple for the Lord. Solomon stood in the presence of the people and before the Lord. And he says, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Like in 1 Kings chapter 8, the text in front of you on the screen, and the text that we are studying today, Genesis 18, God calls his people to do righteousness, to follow after him, to be loyal to him. But all of this is prompted by his loyalty to us. Are we called to loyal, faithful worship of him? Yes. But that is prompted by, undergirded by, enabled by the constant loyal grace of our God. So we walk away from these first 15 verses and we realize God always keeps his covenant promises. They may come in a way that we don't particularly like. They may come after a long period of waiting, but he always keeps his promises. And of course, that should lead us to corresponding worship and love and loyalty toward other people. But the second part of the chapter teaches us something else. God will not fail to punish the wicked. There's two hard things to believe in this text, or at least two hard things to deal with. First hard thing to believe, first thing that's hard to deal with is that it's hard to believe that God will always keep his promises, especially whenever we're struggling. The second thing that's hard to deal with is that the wicked deserve punishment. Even those of us who have been Christians a long time who have understood the grace of the gospel and are thankful that we have eternal life, we still struggle with the idea that God punishes the wicked. In fact, if you don't struggle with that to some degree or another, there's probably something wrong with you. We have these kinds of questions that run through our heads, questions like this. Why doesn't God just forgive everybody? In fact, if you're dealing with unbelievers out there and you present a full-orbed, a, a fully explained gospel dealing both with grace and sin, that's one of the questions that often arises. If your God's so gracious, why doesn't he just forgive everybody? But we know from various texts in the Bible that if God does not punish the wicked, he violates his own character, and he cannot do that. Just like God cannot cease to be steadfast in his love, God cannot cease to be steadfast in bringing justice upon the wicked. If he does either one, he falls apart. He's no longer God, and he's no longer worth trusting. We, we want him to be who he is because what we've been doing from the beginning is recreating gods in our own image, and those gods never work out for us. And what God does is he shows up at our paltry gods made in our own image, and he shatters them. And reading a text like this does that for us. It helps us look at the gods that we have concocted and shaped and say that those aren't real gods at all. The real God always keeps his promises, and the real God must deal with sin. And texts like this shatter those idols that we have created. You see, for us image bearers, particularly those that have been recreated in the image of Christ, there is something in us that understands that wickedness deserves punishment. This text is clear. Sodom and Gomorrah were very evil places. 
In verse 21, God says he's going to go down and see if what he has heard is true. This doesn't mean that he's not omniscient. It doesn't mean that he actually had to walk terrestrial earth to make sure that all that he had heard about or uh, sort of assumed was really true. It just means that he's coming down to inspect. It's clear from verse 20 that he is tired of what they've done. Their sin is great and grave. But he engages Abraham. You see, Abraham is not only going to be the father of the people of Israel, through him the whole world will be blessed. He's sort of like a covenant head. So God engages him in the discussion and says, this is what I'm going to do. And I think he not only wanted to make him aware, he wanted to see how Abraham would respond. Abraham responded really well in this text. I think this text becomes an important sort of litmus for the way that we view ourselves, the way we view other people, and the way that we deal with God in the midst of difficult prayer times. Here's what I mean. Abraham could have looked at Sodom and Gomorrah and say, you know what? That's what they deserve. They are evil. They deserve justice. That isn't what he does, though. He pleads with God. He he wrestles with God. He sort of barters with God a little bit. Now, Abraham's primary sort of concern is that the righteous get spared. But you notice he sort of dickers God down from 50 to 10. Because he knows there's probably not even 10 there. By the end of the discussion here, I think he stops at 10 because he just knows he's going to probably irritate God. But, But he gets from 50 to 10 because he knows things are terrible there. He'd had experience with people from Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that from back in chapter 14, the rulers of the cities. But certainly he'd heard reports. His own nephew Lot was living there, which we'll find in chapter 19. He knew what the people were like there. This was a series of cities, and especially these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, that were marked by terrible living, horrible sin. He knew their reputation. And you might think that he would just look at them and say, well, you know, they're going to get what they deserve. But he doesn't. And I think one of the reasons that God engages him in this discussion is he wants to see how Abraham will respond. And Abraham responds like a covenant head. Abraham starts looking out for the people he's responsible for, especially Lot and his family. But perhaps subtly, Abraham also cared about the entire city. The same God that had called him out of a certain life of destruction, one in which Abraham would have destroyed himself, the one who kept showing up and showing Abraham mercy, perhaps Abraham wanted mercy to be demonstrated to these people. I think that though this might be very subtle, there might be an evangelistic principle for us here. Now again, I think Abraham's primary concern are really for the righteous people, because that's what he talks about. For the sake of the righteous, so that they don't get destroyed, will you also spare the rest of the city? Maybe I'm reading this into the text a little bit, but maybe there's a subtle subtle principle to be noticed that he also cares about the wicked, that they might also have a chance to come, to come to faith, to know this gracious God. Because after all, Abraham is not just responsible for his ethnic people. Abraham is going to be, in a way, responsible for all peoples everywhere. And I think he argues well. I think he responds well to God engaging him in this conversation. Why must God punish sin? Let's look at a couple texts. 
Psalm 5. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Isaiah chapter 13. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. God is perfect in righteousness and he cannot dwell with sin. And he is so consistent about that that even when his own son bore the sins of the world, he looked away. Which, as far as we can tell, was the greatest agony of Christ's crucifixion. The fact that he, for the first time in all of eternity, and the last time in all of eternity, was separated from the loving gaze of his Father. God is consistent. He cannot deal with sin. He cannot relate to sin. Sin may not dwell with him. But you see, that's the beauty of the cross. Jesus was willing to endure such agony, not just physical agony, but relational agony, separation from his Father to bring us back to the Father. Turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 is one of those texts in our Bibles that is hard to understand, hard to interpret, and even when we think we've gotten our minds wrapped around it, it's just hard to deal with. But there's some key verses here that I think are relevant for us today. Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 24. Paul says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Now, contextually, Paul is dealing with sinners and saints, those that God has chosen to bring back to himself, those that God has passed over, those that will find salvation, those that will find retribution and damnation. Notice verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? In other words, the the saved and the unsaved. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. That is to say, against the backdrop of human rebellion, Those whom God has not saved, God has chosen to save some. And therefore, against the backdrop of human sinfulness, the fact that he has chosen to save some makes his grace shine all the brighter because all those who have been chosen to salvation deserve to be in the great crowd of those who will not come to God, who will rebel against him, who will persist in their unbelief and sinfulness. And I think that's what Abraham is arguing for in Genesis 18. Yes, God, spare the righteous, but in doing so, perhaps the unrighteous might also come to faith. Against the backdrop of great human wickedness, show mercy. And when you do so, you get great glory. Moses is arguing God's character back to him. He's saying to God, You're just, you're merciful. Do this. I don't think Abraham is being irreverent here. Notice in Genesis 18, God does not reprimand him for the bartering, if you will. 
which is not the greatest word, but I'm trying to communicate an idea here. He's not angry with Abraham. He understands. And I think Abraham did exactly what God wanted him to do. God engaged him in the conversation so that Abraham would argue like this back to God. God, you're righteous. You're just. You're also merciful. You've been so merciful to us. Please show mercy. God backs down and says, if these ten do show up, I will show mercy. Now, if you know anything about chapter 19, which we'll get to next time that I'm here, things work out not so well for those cities because they are so rampantly wicked. But even in that, God shows mercy to his people. So I think we look at this text and we ask God to be just, which is why we can pray for our brothers and sisters in Iraq today. God, if you're just, show up. And notice how I phrase that? God, if you're just. I'm not saying he's not. I know he is. I'm reminding him of his promises. In other words, let me interpret what I just said to you. God, you've said you're just. If you are, and I believe you are, why don't you go to those mountaintops today in the Middle East and take care of your people? God, you've given us so much. You've blessed us. Can we use our resources, the ones that you have given to us, can we use them for people there? Can we bless them? That's how you pray for tragedies around the world. That's how you pray for the difficulties of your own life. You call God to be reminded of who he is and what he has done. And then you say back to him, God, you're just. God, you're merciful. God, you're faithful. You've got to show up. God, I struggle with lust. God, I struggle with pride. God, I struggle with greed. But I know you're better. I know you'll always take care of me. Show up. God, I have an unsafe family member. I've pleaded with you for years to rescue them. They don't believe you. They hate the Bible. They hate all things holy. But you are a God who delights in mercy. Yes, I know you're just, but would you be pleased in this moment to show up in your mercy, to set aside your just wrath and show up and change this person's heart? That's how you pray for these difficult kinds of things. And I think that's what Abraham shows us in Genesis 18. And our hope, of course, is that the wicked will go from unbelief, from rebellion, willful rebellion, to faith and confidence in God, which is why in Isaiah 55, the prophet says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Ezekiel 18. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord? and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. That's how God views the sinful. Ezekiel 33, And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, eventually Israel will be just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Thus have you said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? To say to them, Ezekiel, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But the wicked may turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house 
of Israel. They found themselves centuries later in the same place. But they can look back at their father Abraham, the one who pleaded on behalf of, yes, the just, but at least by extension, the unjust. And they can understand what it's like to turn to the one true God who was full of justice and full of grace and mercy. So your God is always loyal. He will always keep his promises. There has never been a time, never a moment, when one of God's promises fell to the ground. Of course, the chief expression of this is that he did not withhold his son from us. The scriptures tell us that he gave him up for us all, that we might receive new life. And if he did not withhold his son from us, will he not graciously give us all things that we need? But this God is not only gracious and merciful, he is just. And while we agonize over the justice at times because we do not want to see anybody punished, we understand because God must punish sin. But he uses us as his agents to go into this dark and sinful world that is in willful rebellion against him and proclaim the good news that this rebellion may be overcome and it may be forgiven. So we rest in two hard truths today. That in the midst of our unbelief, God is always faithful. And secondly, that there is a God who must punish sin, and this is tragic. We deal with the first by trusting in him to keep his promises, by waiting on him. We deal with the second by just believing that he does all things well. And then we go engage. We go to the world that desperately is lost in sin and who desperately needs Jesus. And we plead with God. We argue with God. We, we reason with God that he might show mercy to them as well. So I hope that both of these hard truths that the Spirit of God will cause them to sink into us today, that we will reflexively learn to trust God even when it's so very difficult, that we will reflexively remember that God does all things well, even if they don't quite correspond to the way that we wish things were done. And that we might go into the world who doubts and fears and lusts and is prideful and greedy And we give to them the good news that there is one who is faithful and just and will satisfy all of their deepest desires. So that's, I think, how we walk away from this text. We rest and then we engage.